You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Anyone who's spent any time at all with the New Testament is familiar with the opening sentences of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. And anyone who's spent any time at all in graduate studies of language and literature is familiar with another view of the word and words. To quote Ferdinand de Saussure, the great Swiss structuralist linguist, the linguistic sign unites not a thing and a name, but a concept and a sound image. And in the next section he says, the linguistic sign is arbitrary, meaning that no intrinsic relationship exists between, say, the English word tree and the class of entities we use that word to refer to. Word is severed from thing. This is the foundation of structuralist linguistics, and thus the foundation of much of 20th century and 21st century thinking. My name is Michael Farmer, and I'm your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles. Our guest for today is Dr. Roger Lundin, the Arthur F. Holmes Professor of Faith and Learning at Wheaton College, and the president of the Conference of Christianity and Literature, which I think may mean he's my boss, kind of. Dr. Lundin is the author of numerous books, including Literature Through the Eyes of Faith, which is a standard text for introduction to literature classes at Christian colleges. His latest book is Beginning with the Word, Modern Literature and the Question of Belief, which takes on the structuralist conception of language as a sign system and proposes a different way of viewing language, about which more in a moment. Thanks for coming on the show, Roger. I'm delighted to be here with you. This is a really heavy book that deals with some very complex issues. So instead of diving right into structuralist linguistics and nihilism, um, I'd like to start with the traces of autobiography that run through this book. Would you mind telling our listeners the life circumstances that gave you your interest in both modern literature and the question of belief? The questions that animate me in in this book are, are questions that arose from very specific experiences of of suffering and loss and confusion in my own life, especially in my adolescent years. But there are also questions that go to the heart of the experience of so many friends I have had, students I've taught and come to know so well, parishioners with whom I have shared worship and glorious struggles in the church as we've sought to be faithful to Christ and the gospel. So at every level of my life, in teaching, in serving within the church, in being a longtime friend, I've found these questions to be powerful and, and to be rooted in circumstances that are very, very much in part of a, our modern embeddedness. That is, from the beginning, when I when I started to think as a Christian, and after my conversion in my late teenage years, I wanted to understand how it was that the world in which I lived had framed the questions of life for me as it had, and how it shall we say, opened me to the gospel, but also how it made my encounter with faith in Christ different 
and in some ways more problematic than it might have been at another time or in another place. So the questions that are really deeply rooted in personal experience and reflection and cultural life, and they're the questions that I brought to my Christian faith and that I have always wanted to believe the Christian faith can address and respond to with, with clarity and force and uh, solace and hope. And what did you discover when you turned to modern literature to help you make sense of the world? What attracted you to it then and what continues to attract you to it now? Well, in an earlier book of mine called Believing Again, Doubt and Faith in a Secular Age, I, I wrote in the introduction of, of my love of a sentence from Emerson's Self-Reliance. In every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. And I said that I've loved that because it has seemed to me to be, in so many ways, an articulation of what it is that art can do for a human life and in a human life. And I, I, I tell there the story of how when I was 13, I read for the first time a serious work of literature that seemed to address my life powerfully. It was, it was Jack London's um, To Build a Fire. I remember reading it in one sitting for an eighth grade class. And when I was done with it, I felt, my goodness, there's a story that has in effect taken my life and, and articulated the experiences I've had and given me a way of responding to those experiences or seeing those experiences that I would not have had without that reading of that, that work. Thus, um, it's always been the case for me, especially with literature and poetry and fiction, but also with music and the visual arts and film, drama, that I find they, they give me back my life as a gift. As, as a gift with renewed and deepened perception and insight that I would not have had had it not been for that encounter, that engagement, that, that glorious and mystifying wrestling with the, with the work of art that we all often, so often experience when we, when we read and we listen and we look and we hear. Was it that modern literature in particular gave you this uh, to the exclusion of all other eras? Um, not necessarily. That was the case at first because as a 13 and 14-year-old, I wasn't equipped with much understanding of history and I didn't have the ability to reflect upon different ages and, and other circumstances. So there was, a, there, but there was an immediacy to modern literature at that time. I, I also have come to think in academic terms and historical terms that there is something particularly powerful about the literature of the last 150 to 200 years, in part because the literature has a primary and raw, shall we say, force to it, that so often the academic disciplines they sell, themselves do not have once they become organized in the mid and late 19th century into something like the, the, the disciplines as we know them. I love to work in philosophy, I have a deep passion for theology. I, I, I do enjoy the theoretical study of literature, but I, but I often find that these are somewhat secondary activities, 
to the primary activity of, of, of encountering the great human questions as they come to me in novels and in short stories and in films and in poetry. It, it's a bit of an overstatement, but, but it's almost as though in the last 150 years, the academic disciplines have, to a significant extent, given up on the, the, the central questions and the, the felt experiences that, that human beings have explored for, since before the time of Christ in what we would call philosophy, in, in, in what we would think of as history, and what we now term as literature or put under the rubric of systematic theology. So yes, there is a certain force in modern literature that I think it was primal or primary. I don't think it was something exclusive to literature, but there's a real, there is a real power to address human experience directly. To speak in what Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote of in the Scarlet Letter as the hearts made of language. That rings true to me too. Um, you know, Lionel Trilling has this essay where he talks about how modern literature asks questions that are way too personal for any other era and that teaching it is like gazing into the abyss and having the abyss look back and say, aren't I clever? <laughs> <laughs> that is a great, great essay of his. And I read that many years ago and I, I suppose what it did was to provide me with a a really nicely and elegantly uh, phrased way of thinking about what I was intuiting as, 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 as a teacher. Yeah, I think, I think Prilling is right. So does it become it, kind of a battle between reading modern literature and teaching it for you? Is there a way to keep that in balance? Well, and it's interesting because years ago, many, many years ago, I remember having a colleague tell me that his dream, his dream was to have a, um, this is before, web-based learning, but to have a an assessment center on campus where students would go in once a week and register their responses to teaching. And then faculty members would be expected on Friday afternoon to go to this center and get the updated report and how they had done that week for their how classes. Right. And he said, uh, I said, well, I don't really need that, I think. He said, um, what do you mean you don't need that? If you don't get constant feedback like that, how do you know what you're doing? How do you know if you're communicating? And I said, I look them in the eye. Imagine that. <laughs> I do. I look them in the eye. I make eye contact. And, and, and I, hear them, I hear them with my heart. I ask them questions. I, I ask students after class and in my office. I ask them questions. And, and I hear their stories and I understand how varied are the sources of confusion or longing or outright pain and hurt in their lives. And what I find is that when you have a sense of where not all of your students, but where many of your students are, it's not that difficult to be thinking of the analogies and illustrations and connections that will take a novel by Hawthorne or a poem by Dickinson or, or a tragedy by Shakespeare and bring it right into the heart of a student's life and right into the heart of a contemporary discussion. But it does take knowing something about your audience and having some deep sense about how their experience is, is guiding and directing 
not determining, but guiding and directing their engagement with what they what they hear, with what they read and what they're hearing from you. Well, the villain, if there is one, of beginning with the word is not a person so much as a view of language that's been dominant in academic circles for the last century or so. I mentioned structuralism in my introduction, but I'd like it if you uh, if you ran through a couple of its basic tenets here for our listeners who might not be familiar with it. Well, if there's a villain in the book, and you're right, it's not really a villain, but if there is a, a, a large presence in the book against which I'm leaning and against which I'm, in a sense, pushing back, it is structuralism as a theory of language, but I think more importantly, it's naturalism with its claims to offering a comprehensive and exhaustive explanation for the whole of human reality from the first moment of the instant of creation some 14 billion years ago to the projected last uh, dying ember of a universe imploding upon itself some X point X million billion years in the future and to offer an explanation of everything in between. Philosophical naturalism believes profoundly in the, the adequacy and comprehensiveness of materialist explanation as a way of accounting for all elements of human experience, human nature, and human destiny. And, and working out of a naturalist set of premises, it's not hard then to develop a, a view of language that sees language as this, I don't know what you would call it, this curious accident or add-on to the whole process, this strange spin-off from the process, because for naturalism, the idea that, that what John says is true is ludicrous, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through the Word all things were made, and as the letter to the Colossians says, through the Word all things are being sustained and reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, these, these things in a naturalist world are, are absolutely unimaginable. <clears throat> It's easy to make the move from that naturalist understanding to say that the relationship between, let's say, a word and a reality, between words and reality, cannot be anything more than, than a matter of arbitrary imposition or custom. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche said in an essay, I think it was from 1873 or 74, on truth and lie in the extramoral sense, he says, truths are illusions about which we have forgotten that that is what they are. And my way of putting that is, in the Nietzschean view, language is simply a record of human acts of arbitrary uh, imposition of our, our desires upon the blank face of reality. And the only way you can have a, a belief that language is connected to reality in the Nietzschean vision is through some form of forgetfulness. You've forgotten the arbitrariness and the power relationships that place these words upon reality and gave them the meaning that we believe they have. 
And in my argument here, in, in beginning with the word, is a basic Christian argument, but it's an argument that's been buttressed by my reading of a number, number of uh, great modern philosophers, in particular Hans-Georg Gadamer and Paul Ricoeur, and then very, very importantly for me, the um, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, whose work Sources of the Self and the Secular Age have, have had a profound influence in my thinking about these things because they have given me a way of adding nuance and depth to my, my attempt to articulate a different view of the Christian relationship, the, the relationship for the Christian of language to reality. Taylor, for example, uh, Taylor, just for example, in Sources of the Self, says that you, one cannot understand the, the history of human reflection about reality, about God, about the problem of evil, about justice, about the meaning of nature, without understanding that through most of human experience, reflection upon reality was grounded in, in what he calls a view of the ontic logos. That is a view that sees reality as being fundamentally and deeply imbued with meaning, having a structure and an order. You might call it a, a reasonableness, or you might call it a, a, a if you're thinking more in reform terms, a, 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 an eschatological purpose and direction. That are, that are that tie together all the things we, we we know and do through language mysteriously with the, the fundamental structures of, of, of creation itself reality is Taylor says through most of history for most of the people deeply worded and what is it about the work of Gadamer and Ricoeur and Taylor that you find to be a more beneficial view of language than that offered by Saussure. Ricoeur, who admitted his deep indebtedness to structuralism and saw value in the, 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 the structuralist effort to map and, and bracket the human use of language and to, to, to understand the, the deep structures of, of, of linguistic categories and linguistic usage, Ricoeur, who, who had all of that interest in structuralism, said that the fundamental problem with structuralism was that it failed to understand that, that language is ultimately there for humans to use to say something about the world, about reality, as it is and, and as it might be. There is, in other words, something in language that cannot be separated from the human use of language to describe, to understand, to order reality, and to imagine possibilities that might lead to transformation or, or change, op the opening up of possible worlds. One of the things I've, I've gotten from Ricoeur is, is um, I would call it a philosophical sanction for an explanation of something that I found myself doing very early on. 
I, I spoke of this yesterday to a, a class and I got a lot of nods of recognition and understanding. I, I, I suppose I often tell a, a new class of students that one of the reasons I fell in love with literature was that when I was young, literature was the equivalent of a, of a great psychological and spiritual dress-up box. <laughs> you know, that box that a mother or father, an older sibling has where you can just try on different costumes and you can you can masquerade, you can, you can you can play as characters. And I said, you know, so much of childhood consists of that kind of playing of, of, of games where you take on roles and you try out possibilities. And I said, I said to my students, when I was a, a new Christian and I was a, a somewhat confused young man and I was trying to make my way in life and understand how it was I was was to how I was to live and and what kind of person I should become and what kind of colleague I might potentially be what what type of husband I could possibly be and what kind of father I could be I turned to characters in literature to see what they were like I didn't say this at the time but when I read um, George Eliot's Middlemarch in my early 20s, I thought Dorothea Brooke was a remarkably powerful character. And I, I, I said, what would, the, what would life look like if I, if, I, if I viewed it through her eyes? Or if, if I had lived in, 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 in her position as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an aspiring woman in early and mid-19th century England, what, what, what would life look like? If I had her concerns, that was so true for me when I read Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. I thought of each of those three brothers, and I felt a part of part of me belonged to each brother. Or should I said, I, or maybe I should say, I felt there was something of each brother in me. And I remember distinctly that that was my feeling when I began reading Flannery O'Connor's stories. <laughs> I would read her stories and I, I would identify with characters and imagine, well, yes. For example, if I took nihilism to its logical end or, or just a radical determinism, I'd be like the misfit. In O'Connor's story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. I'd, I'd be like the misfit. I'd, I'd, I'd determine that there's no pleasure but in meanness. So I... I I looked at, I look at someone like Ricoeur, understanding the way in which, and his understanding of the way in which works of literature open up possible worlds, and I say, that's absolutely right. That's why so many of us turn to poetry and to fiction and to film to see what we ought to become, what we might become, how we can find things to emulate and things to shun. Let me, let, me, let me follow up on that with just one illustration. That I, it's even more than an illustration. It's a full treatment in, in the book. I, I give the better part of a chapter over to the discussion of Frederick Douglass's narrative of his life as a slave, his, his great mid-19th century narrative. <clears throat> and, and I focus in particular on what Frederick says about his childhood. He was young Frederick Bailey. That he was born, he never knew who his father was. Rumor was that his father was a white man and that his father was his master, but he never knew. That information was denied to him. He said he never knew his mother. 
he, he saw her perhaps five or six times in his entire life. He had virtually no connection to any extended family. And he knew nothing of the world outside the brutal life of the plantation. Looking back, he said that was because, to use his term, he was totally inside the circle. And being totally inside the circle, he had no way of knowing that there were other possibilities. He hated his conditions as a slave. He hated the treatment. He hated the degrading system. He, he was oppressed by the, by, by the ever-present and never-ending practices and brutalities of slavery. But it wasn't until he was in a transfer among family members sent to Baltimore as a young lad, probably, I forget what he was, maybe about 10 or 11, to work, to live and serve as a slave in, in, in a city family that was, uh, you know, part of the extended family that, quote-unquote, owned him in the plantation. And the mistress of the house, Mrs. All, began to teach him how to read. Her husband's uh, anger, when he discovered that she was teaching him how to read, led young Frederick to imagine there must be something very important in this act and art of reading. And through determination and guile, he learned how to read slowly but steadily. And once he learned how to read, he was able to imagine a life outside and beyond the circle. And, and for the first time, he, got the, he, he developed the thought of the possibility of freedom. The despair that, that, that Frederick felt had to do with this simple fact that he gives an account of so movingly in his narrative. Reading had given me a view of my wretched condition without the remedy. It opened my eyes to the horrible pit, but to no ladder upon which to get out. In moments of agony, I envied my fellow slaves for their stupidity. I've often wished myself a beast. I preferred the condition of the meanest reptile to my own. Anything, no matter what, to get rid of thinking. It was this everlasting thinking of my condition that tormented me. There was no getting rid of it. And what he's describing there is the initial wave and experience of despair that he suffered when he learned how to read, began to realize there was such a thing as freedom that he might potentially enjoy. A world in which he could work for his own wages, marry the woman of his choice, raise a family in relative peace and tranquility, define himself with liberty and a full range of opportunities. But of course, to a young black man in a slave-holding culture, that was simply almost an impossible dream, an illusion, a mirage. Then the rest of the narrative gives the account of how he eventually escaped, and then 
Beyond that, the rest is history. He became arguably the most powerful African-American advocate for abolition, and without question, I think, one of the central writers of 19th century American literature, and in a very great um, cultural and political force in the second half of the 19th century. But it was having the world open to him through the possibilities of freedom, through reading, it was that that made him realize that all of life was not lived within the circle. There were possibilities beyond. I, I, I often think of how much he has in common with another writer who's so important to me from this period. They certainly didn't know each other in person or by work. But Emily Dickinson. Uh, Dickinson has a poem written about 1862 or 1863. Short poem goes like this. Of course I prayed. And did God care? He cared as much as on the air a bird had stamped her foot and cried, Give me my reason, life I had not had but for yourself. T'were better charity to leave me in the atom's tomb, merry and naught and gay and numb than this smart misery. What both Dickinson's poem and Douglas's first-person account get at is, is again, a, a common experience of many people in the modern world. The experience of feeling that they are, they, they, they are living trapped within a system of natural, or in the case of Douglas, natural and political necessity. Through language, they get the idea of a world a great and grand world of possibilities beyond that system. And yet, it's difficult for them, at times, not to wonder whether it would have been better never to have had these thoughts. Douglas says he envied the beasts and their stupidity. And Dickinson says it would have been better charity for God to have left me in the atom's tomb I would have been merry because I would have been nothing. I would have been gay. I would have been jovial. I would have been in bliss because I would have been numb. And that would have been better than this smart misery, this stinging misery of knowledge. And I think that that's one of the central difficulties that naturalism and its, uh, shall we say, linguistic cousin structuralism faces for people who want to believe that life might be more than the story of the of, of, of the collection of atoms and the outbreak of biological life, and then this bizarre late spin-off of consciousness out of which comes language. All of it, all of it headed to nothing, and really in a sense predicated upon and shot through with nothing. And I should say that that's one of the reasons why as important as the writers and the philosophers are in the book for me, it's also the gospel, and the gospel is articulated and thought through by some of the great theological figures of the last hundred years that, that really hold my interest there. You talk a lot about Balthazar and Barth in the book. Yeah, Hans Urs von Balthasar, Karl Barth, John Paul II makes a number of appearances, a, a, a very fine English theologian named Colin Gunton, the 
the, the, the American Lutheran theologian, Robert Jensen. I'm looking for, for dynamic and powerful theological figures who can speak to this question. Relatively conservative uh, thinkers. Yeah, who are affirming orthodoxy and who write eloquently and very specifically about the power of language to convey truth about the world and the power of language to reveal God's general, shall we say, truths about the world, and then most specifically, the particular truths that come with the story of God's faithfulness to his people, supremely evidenced in the life, and passion, and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm very much enamored of theological work that, that enters into this intellectual and cultural and personal fray and offers words of constructive possibility and comfort and confidence. And I realize that I'm dealing with widely disparate figures. I've got the, I've got the greatest theological person of the 20th century, thinker of the 20th century, Karl Barth, Reformed Protestant with a large dollop of Lutheranism in him. And a good bit of existentialism, too. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, but uh, he's, in, he's in conversation with um, arguably one of the great, you know, one of the great popes, of the, whatever the great popes, I don't know what you would call him. Just a, what a world historical figure, John Paul II, a man of massive political significance and theological and philosophical importance and great intellect. And then Hans Urs von Balthasar, the, the great Catholic theologian who's of, of tremendous importance for Christians who work in and think about the faith in and through the arts. And then these other figures. Um, I'm, I, I welcome ecumenical voices, and I'm not trying to overlook deep-seated conflicts between some of the traditions represented here. And yet I'm wanting to do a constructive job of taking great Christian voices and bringing them into the conversation that has been dominated so, so heavily by theorists and, and certain philosophical perspectives. It's, it's funny, you know, Christians don't have a lot of voice in contemporary continental philosophy. I mean, I know, I know Paul Ricoeur is a Protestant, but for the most part, it's, it, it's a, it's a genre of thinking dominated by non-Christian voices. Michael, the way I would look at this question of uh, the absence or presence of Christian voices in contemporary ac academic life, continental philosophy and elsewhere, the way I would look at it is, is, is something like this, that I've spent my, I've spent several decades now reading contemporary theorists of literature and language. And I have tried to the best of my ability to understand how what they say is significant and, and, and illuminating and, and sometimes challenging. Uh, and yet what I've been struck by is how in the debates about language and the interpretation of texts in the late 20th century, we have this enormous gap. And that is that very rarely do you ever hear the names of Balthasar, John Paul II, or Karl Barth, or Eberhard Jungel, 
the great contemporary German Lutheran theologian, brought into the conversation. And, and I write in the uh, introduction to beginning with the word that I want, without hesitation or defensiveness, to introduce strong theological voices into the conversation about language and belief. And, and I, I want to do so because I want to break the silence that so often seems to surround literary theory and cultural studies when it comes to the question of theology. The reasons for this silence cannot be that the partners are so woefully mismatched that a genuine dialogue between the theorists and the theologians would be somehow unthinkable. It's not as though Ferdinand de Saussure, Richard Rorty, and Frank Kermode are tilling some lofty plateaus of the intellect, while Karl Barth, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and John Paul II toil away on, out of sight on barren landscape in the valleys far below. I just think it's uh, an important thing. I, I might say it's time for Christians, without defensiveness and without apology, simply to bring theological voices into the conversation and to say, this is how this problem looks if you consider it in the light of what the Christian church has taught historically. Here are what fully modern but deeply orthodox Christians think about these very issues that you somehow believe have carried us beyond the pale of Christian thought and its possible relevance. I want to say no. Here are speak voices who speak into the heart of our modern condition and speak to us of things that, if we, that, that we have ignored or forgotten or failed to engage. And, and I'd add to that mix a couple of the philosophers. I mentioned Charles Taylor, who does not use the label Catholic philosopher, but he is a deeply embedded and committed practicing Catholic. And I'm, I'm, I'm also thinking of Alastair MacIntyre, the, the, the great author of um, After Virtue and a number of other works that speak with an unparalleled force of the need to bring back into modern moral and intellectual life the very specific resources of, the, of Christian thought in the Christian tradition. So I said, let's do that. Let's understand these theologians and let's understand the modern world in such a way that we can bring them together and hear what they sound like and see what they look like when they, when they enter into dialogue. That's been my overarching goal for the last 10 years or so of my writing projects and I'm continuing to work at it. One of the things uh, that a lot of Christian scholars are excited about is the so-called religious turn in literary studies, but you actually talk about this uh, most of a chapter to it, and, and you are not as optimistic about it as a lot of people are. Can you explain your reasons for doing it with some skepticism? Well, yes. I, the, the, the reason I, I, I raise the questions I do is that I've had good friends, and I've read many articles by people I know of in the profession who have been very, very excited that religion is back in the conversation. One of the things I attempt to show here in the book is that in many of these works, which, for which I have great respect, and from several of them I've learned really cogent things about the literature I teach, but in, in, in these works that represent the religious turn, the definition of religion is so 
deeply steeped in the naturalist tradition that religion is really just another name for certain aspirations and longings of human experience and the human human spirit. Religion is not about questions of ultimate truth, of redemption, of revelation, <laughs> of deliverance and perish the thought, death and resurrection, of you know forgiveness of sins. No, these these are things that you religion is not about those things. No, it's, I'm not trying to dismiss these thinkers, and I'm not trying to 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 belittle them or or to downplay their importance. But I, I just want to say to my fellow Christians, these are people who are, are who are who largely come to us out of the the strain of American and Western, shall we say, religiousness that you might trace back to William James above a, 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 more than anyone else. I like to take on figures whom I respect, and, and I, try, I try to do so with respect, because I, I think it's important to, to make distinctions that are, that are useful. If, if religion is coming back in literary studies, the view of religion that's being welcomed back is so very often so deeply circumscribed and, and limited by philosophical naturalism, and we'll go back to it, by structuralist assumptions about language, that there really isn't an awful lot for a Christian to build on there. Yeah, I remember in, in grad school, I used to announce that yeah. I did theology and literature, and I remember having to convince a teacher that, that it was theology and literature I was doing, not religion and literature, which uh, is behind so much of the religious turn, and which seems to me to be more sociology than anything else. Yeah, sociology and psychology, yes, it is. I've got, I, have, I have a question for you, but, but first of all, say my thinking on this has been so, it's been very powerful influence, powerfully influenced by the several works that George Marsden has written on this subject, including The Soul of the American University, but by the work of the Notre Dame historian James Turner, whose, um, whose book, Without God, Without Creed, The Origins of Unbelief in America, it's, it's I think, a, a, a landmark study of the relationship between historic Christianity and religion and the academic universe. He, he, other works have followed upon that one. And also by D.G. Hart, who uh, writes very, Daryl Hart, who writes very, very uh, acutely and perceptively about these questions. And then on, 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 uh, I would recommend to, to your audience here, that if anyone wants to understand the origins of this religious turn, I don't know if they could do better than to read a, a trilogy, biographies of Emerson, Thoreau, and William James, written by Robert Richardson, who has the virtue of being one of the, the really one of the greatest prose stylists we have working today. And he, he writes as a sympathetic insider to the Emerson, Thoreau, William James, and turn to religion as, as a kind of deepest form of human consciousness and experience. I have a fundamental philosophical and theological difference with Bob Richardson, but I think those books are absolutely brilliant studies of, shall we say, the dynamic that gets established in modern life when we think about religion as the many different works that celebrate the return to religion in literary studies 
define religion. And, and my question for you is: You mentioned you hadn't read the, the books that I I've meant I, I deal with in this book, but when you think of the return to religion in literary studies, and you and I are both teachers of this stuff, who is it, uh, or what are the things that, that have alerted you to this, or what are the things that people you know have pointed to as signs of this re return to religion? Oh, I, I would say it's it's all over the academy. I went to the M Midwest MLA last year in Milwaukee, and I, I sat, I, I wasn't on the panel, but I, I observed right. a panel with <clears> this, um, with this guy, Tim, Tim Sutton, uh, he's from, I can't remember what college he's from in Florida, but it feels like I should, <laughs> I should give him credit for saying this. And, and he, he talked about how the big problem with religious studies for him is that people will just kind of make up stuff and then attribute it to religious people as if that's what they actually believed. Right. That, and, and religion is designed, it, it, it's such an elastic term and it's defined so broadly that it can cover almost any impulse that drives people to un try to understand the meaning of their lives. It's a feeling of absolute dependence, right? That's true. That, that, that's right. And when, when, when I think of it, I think of a theologian who means a great deal to me, but with whom I've always had profound disagreements from the first moment I read him. That's Paul Tillich. I read a lot of Paul Tillich as a young college student. Yeah, and, and that, so when I read The Return to Religion, I say, well, this is, this is Tillich as he was writing 50 to 75 years ago. And then the other way I'm familiar with a religious turn is there, there was this trend a few years ago. I dealt with it in my dissertation with people who are largely reacting to the new atheists. So, you know, Dawkins comes out with this, the God delusion or Hitchens comes out with God is not great. Mm -hmm. And, and these people will write books defending religion on terms that seem very strange to me. So uh, there was, there was one um, Karen Armstrong's a case for God, where she says that people just kind of need ritual and mm -hmm. that we should, we should legitimize that. And there was one James M. Carr's the religious case against belief, where he talks very much about this, this doctrineless experience of religion and that's what matters and maybe most famously there was robert Wright's the evolution of god which says essentially well religion was modified over time into monotheism and anything's good as long as it makes you more of a good social person when you say these things it, it calls to mind the very first book i read by richard royalty philosophy in the mirror of nature I read it 30 years or so ago Rorty is a very important figure to me. I, have, I think he's a remarkably lucid thinker and prose stylist. I, I very much enjoy reading him. But I remember at the end of um, Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature, he makes a very strong pitch for giving up on the idea of philosophy as the search for the truth. Instead, the purpose of philosophical thinking and the purpose of all really all humanistic activity is to keep the conversation going. And ever since I read that in Rorty, I've thought about it. This is the dream of post-World War II tenured intellectual elites in the American Academy. What is the purpose of life? The purpose of life is to have tenure and a secure income 
and to be paid to sit around tables talking without end <laughs> to other people. And I, I really love the idea of talking. <laughs> I love teaching. But it, it's, it's Baltasar who once said in a cosmic sense, something that I said earlier in the interview about Ricoeur, where I said Ricoeur said, the purpose of language ultimately is that we use it to say something about something, about reality, to point to and to speak of reality. And Baltasar, I don't remember where he says this, but I, I remember reading it and I quote it somewhere in something I've written in the last 10 years. He says, what, what all this talk about conversation seems to forget is that the Christian faith is about a conversation that is meant to have an end. <laughs> it's going somewhere. It, it, it's, about, it's about something that's not going to go on forever, but rather about a meaningful history that is coming to its glorious conclusion in its consummation in Christ in the coming of the kingdom of God. So there's a purpose to it. Yes, we engage in it, but we don't. the purpose of life is not simply to talk and to forestall that moment when we slip into oblivion, but it is to pursue truth and to use language to anticipate the glorious consummation, to, to yearn for and work towards and to pray for that day. When his first John says at the end of first John two and the beginning of three, we don't know what we will be, but we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. John says that all who have this hope in them purify themselves as Christ is pure. That's the way I want to think about conversation. Uh, John John addresses his his audience his the the people who are the recipients of his letter, he calls them little children. And I remember a meditation on this um, passage that my seminary professor, Ramsey Michaels, who is still very much an active scholar, I, I don't just mention as an aside, an excellent new book on Flannery O'Connor by a longtime New Testament uh, scholar, Ramsey Michaels. But Ramsey said that the, uh, when I was in, in, at Gordon Conway, said, John addresses his listeners, his readers, his little children. Well, what do children do? They play. <laughs> they play. And what, how do they play? They play in hope and in confidence because they are, are growing and they know that the fate of the world is not in their hands. And to a very large extent, that, I, that is the attitude I think Christians ought to take towards cultural, cultural engagement. It's deadly serious, but it is play. And, and we are privileged and, and, and called to participate in that play. Not simply to keep talking until the clock runs down and we, we kind of we vanish, but to participate in that play is the great way of anticipating the world that God is bringing into being in our midst through the, through the work of Jesus Christ. The word who was before all things and the word who will be at the end of all things. And the word who is sustaining and upholding us through all things. That word, not a general word of meaning, but a very specific word. Of the word who became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. The word who appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. With the wounds of his own passion and crucifixion still visible. Not some generalized word, but this word, 
Christ Jesus, in whom and through whom and by whom all things have been made and are being reconciled to God through the cross and the empty tomb. That's the joyful thing about being a Christian in the modern world and being able to engage in conversation with the theorists of language and the writers of literature. Are there contemporary or modern authors who share that view of language, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Flannery O'Connor, Richard, Richard Wilbur, um, Czesław Miłosz, the Nobel Prize winning uh, Polish poet, Lithuanian slash Polish poet who lived for 40 years in the United States and died in 2004. Wilbur, Miłosz, Marilyn Robinson, I think of. I have to add John Updike in there. And for Updike, yes. You you think of his project of just representing the entire world in words, and, and that just has to be incarnational in some way. Updike's a special case. He, he seems to have peaked, in a sense, theologically in his early and middle fiction, and he remained to the end of his life a Christian, but he was so hesitant in tenuousness, excuse me, he was so hesitant and tenuous about the connections of his Christian faith to the world he described that he seemed not to draw assurance or comfort from it. Yeah, I would say the last decade or so of his career, everything from, say, Gertrude and Claudius on, it's almost nihilistic in a way that his early and middle work, as you say, is not. It loses its hope. Well, you know, there's, and then there's a, this. Uh, if you can hold a second here, I can I can get this pretty quickly. Um, there was a um, book he published of poems that were published after his death. Have you ever read that? Endpoint, yeah. Endpoint and other. Endpoint, yeah. It they're 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 really remarkable books, uh, poems. And there, there are in those poems real indications of a longing, especially in the poems that he wrote, remarkably, in the last two months of his life. You know, he, well, and you know, he, he, he went out in early November of 2008. He was very sick deathly sick. He did not yet know he had lung cancer. He did a book tour of, of the Pacific Northwest as an act of loyalty and devotion, came back and within weeks was in the hospital and, and never really got out except to be put into hospice care at the very end of his life. And there is in something he wrote, the very last poem in Endpoint, uh, I'm going I'm to read it, called Fine Point. Why go to Sunday school? though surlily, and not believe a bit of what was taught. The desert shepherds in their scratchy robes undoubtedly existed, and Israel's defeats, the temple and its sacredness destroyed by Babylon and Rome. Yet Jews kept faith and passed the prayers, the crabbed rites, from table to table as Christians mocked. We mocked, but took. The timbrel creed of praise gives spirit to the daily. Bludge tinges lips. 
the tongue reposes in papyrus pleas, saying, surely, magnificent that surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, my life forever. It's the very last poem that he wrote and published, written five weeks before his death. So there too is a, a Christian admittedly wrestling and struggling with the, what I would call the naturalism and structuralism of his day. It's very much uh, going on in him. And he says somewhere that, um, that, that he's torn by these two impulses, the idea that modern naturalist science has explained everything. But then on the other hand, we have all these feelings and hopes and desires that really only religion can account for. That's exactly right. Um, and I'll, I'm not embarrassed to tell your listeners that on the night I heard of his death, I had no idea he was he was even ill. I happened to be in the midst of Rabbit is Rich. I was rereading all four Rabbit novels. I had started when I, I was I had started rereading them maybe a month before. I'd read them all over the years when they came out. And when I heard the news of his death, I had the book and I it was actually on, on the on the web. I had the book next to me, and I wept for ten minutes. I just—it was. Um, this is a writer I had more or less gone through my whole adult life with, and especially with his character Rabbit. And although I professed and practiced a more robust form of Christianity than he was able to uh, subscribe to and profess, I felt in him a kindred spirit, and I, and I felt for him a. I mean, I had deep feelings of empathy and sadness for the thought of his final days. I love literature. And one, of the, one of the many reasons I love it is it brings me into the lives of others in ways I could never have imagined. And it brings them into my life in ways that I can only say, thank you, God, for giving me the gift of these writers who've taken my life and given me a way of understanding that they've They've articulated it in the deep sense of suturing it together, and they've given it back to me. And I don't have to accept what they say without criticism. I don't have to approve of everything they do, the characters do. But they are a gift for me because they show me truths about myself and possibilities for my life in God's world that I don't know that I would have come up with on my own. So I begin and end my thinking about modern literature and these questions as a Christian with thankfulness to God for the profound gift of being able to spend so much time reading poetry and fiction and talking to others about it, not simply for the reason that I want to keep talking forever, but because I want to join together with others to understand more fully our lives and to secure more firmly the grounds of our hope in, in Christ. Well, I don't think we're going to be able to find a better way to end the show than that. I want to thank you, Roger Lindine, for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles and talking to me for the last hour or so. Uh, thanks. It's been, uh, thank you. If our listeners would like uh, to comment on today's episode, our website is at christianhumanist.org, where there will also be a link to buy Dr. Lundin's uh, latest book, Beginning with the Word. Thanks for listening.